This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going down a very interesting path that has become much more interesting than it ever has been recently. We're going to talk, be talking about UFOs and nuclear weapons. And the reason we're talking about it now, well, there are two reasons. First is I can't find Robert Hastings, who's going to be our guest on, has ever been on Dreamland before. He may have been, welcome Robert, he may have been on Dreamland before, but I couldn't find it. And it's time, certainly. Uh, the reason we're doing this is this world is turning into a nuclear death trap, slowly but surely. Uh, we have small wars, and of course, the people are experiencing them. We don't consider them small in Ukraine and uh, in uh, Gaza. Uh, we have uh, now a, a heightened sense of tension in uh, Taiwan and between Taiwan and China because of the recent election, which elected a, a very anti China uh, president again to the presidency of Taiwan. Uh, we have North Korea actually making direct threats that they will attack the United States, and they do possess rockets that could do it. So it's a very unstable situation, not to mention what's going on in the uh, uh, in it, it with the with the uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen and their uh, Iranian backers, that could explode in some way as well. So it's a really dangerous time. What do the visitors and their interest in nuclear weapons have, if anything, to do with this? If the rockets went off, would they stop it? Let's take a look at the history of this. And it goes back a long time, doesn't it, Robert? It does. 1945. 1945 is the first case that I've investigated. Now, you've been, tell us a little bit about you, yourself, and welcome to Dreamland, by the way. I was so preoccupied with the fear of nuclear war that I didn't really say welcome. No, thank um, you. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your, you've been doing this a long time, 40 years. What got you started? Uh, my father was career Air Force, and in 1967, he was stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana, which was then and still is a Minuteman nuclear missile base. Uh, long story short, uh, I was a teenager in high school, uh, but I did have a job three nights a week as a janitor in the base air traffic control tower. Uh, my, meanwhile, my father worked in what was called the SAGE building, which was the NORAD radar facility. Uh, but one night uh, in March of 1967, uh, I was in this room called RAPCON, Radar Approach Control, and one of the FAA controllers who I had made the acquaintance of just unexpectedly pointed out on a screen that he was tracking unknown targets. And I stood there and, and looked at his screen and saw five blips, and he was saying, we don't know what these are. And it's been too many years for me to remember the exact conversation but that was the gist of it. And I got kind of excited and began peppering him with questions. And I think I was drawing attention to myself because his demeanor changed very quickly. And he said, we've got a situation here. Come back later and clean up, which I did. 
And when I went back later in the evening, he did not want to talk about it. But I nevertheless went home and excited, excitedly told my father, I think they're tracking UFOs down at the tower. And unbeknownst to me, probably the next day at the Sage building, he made inquiries. And within a few days, he said something to me. They were tracking those same five objects at, at the NORAD facility. And the rumor is that they were near missile silos. So that was all I knew in 1967, but it seemed pretty intriguing to me. And then, uh, you know, I, I completed high school, went to college, got married. And in 1974, I read a book by Raymond Fowler, well-known researcher. Uh, Raymond worked for the Sylvania Corporation, which was one of the Minuteman contractors. And in one of his books, uh, he said that contacts he had at Malmstrom were telling him that UFOs were, in fact, hovering over the ICBMs, the Minuteman missiles, and that the missiles were malfunctioning. And that just was it for me. I mean, I went, this is real. That had to have been what was occurring at Malmstrom, you know, some years ago when I was there. And this is worth pursuing. So slowly but surely, I started seeking out and interviewing Air Force veterans. I knew that I shouldn't approach active duty personnel because the kind of information I had, if, if they were privy to it, uh, you know, it could ruin their career if their commanders knew that I was talking to them about these very sensitive things. So beginning in the early 70s, 1973, I started interviewing Air Force veterans about this nuclear weapons related UFO activity. And uh, really, because of age and illness, I, I sort of pulled out of the what what I've been doing uh, in about 10 years ago. But at that point, I had 167 Air Force sources. Uh, up to the rank of colonel, uh, including nuclear missile launch officers, targeting officers, missile maintenance security personnel, uh, missile maintenance rather, personnel, and security, the policemen who guarded the missiles. And those 167 sources are on record, uh, on tape, audio or videotape, describing incidents where UFOs decade after decade have repeatedly monitored and even shut down uh, and from time to time, temporarily activated our ICBMs. And um, I just think this is self-evidently an important thing that people need to know about. Um, I went on the college lecture circuit beginning in 1981, did that for 36 years, spoke at over 500 colleges and universities in America and at Oxford University in England to try to spread the word, spread the message. And... Um, Perhaps the most publicity that I got was in 2010, uh, a former missileer, missile launch officer named Bob Salas. Many of your listeners will recognize that name. Yeah, uh, he's he, uh, been on the show. He was at Malmstrom the same time my father was. And as most people know who are, are familiar with the situation, uh, a UFO actually shut down all 10 of his missiles. And he and I decided in 2010 that we would try to do a mass media push and we held a press conference in Washington on September 27th. Unbelievably to me, CNN showed up at the last minute and live streamed it. And we got media coverage all over the world. But uh, Salas and six other uh, Air Force veterans were describing these kinds of incidents. And, um, you know, it's not going away. Lou Elizondo now, the former head of ATIP, has uh, publicly repeatedly said in interviews and podcasts and so on that, the nuclear connection is very real and that ATIP was aware of it 
And as we can talk about at some point here, uh, ATIP actually had my book in its possession, uh, thanks to their scientific advisor, Dr. Hal Putoff. <laughs> he, I, I found out years later that he gave copies of my book to some very important people. I've seen um, your book at Hal's house. Okay, that doesn't. I, I've been. I've known Hal for many years. We've never discussed your your work, but I definitely it's in his library. Yeah, so a picture of his bookshelf sometime. I'll see if you let me do that. Um, yeah, you know, so it's been my life's work. I, I still find it fascinating and amazing, and in my opinion, one of the principal factors in the increase in U increase in UFO activity since World War II which is well-documented, is directly related to the nuclear weapons situation. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, the first case I, I've investigated occurred in 1945 at a place called Hanford Plutonium Production Site. And let's, uh, let's, let's slow down for a second because we've got a little break to do. Let me, um, let me put it on pause for a moment, folks, and not for everybody. Uh, for the subscribers, we'll just have a little blip. But for those listening on the free side, uh, there'll be some commercials. I hope you respond uh, to them. The more you do that, the more we can do. Uh, and incidentally, speaking of commercials, for everybody, you should know that uh, them, communion, and the original edition of The Key are all available from the unknowncountry.com bookstore, signed by me. So you can go and order them and you will promptly receive a lovely signed copy of one of these books or whichever books you order. All right, we'll be right back. We're talking to Robert Hastings, his website, ufohastings.com, his book, UFOs and Nukes. Don't miss it. Uh, it is a very, very high level work. This is this is tells the whole story, and it's a huge story, truly huge, Robert. And thank you from myself and from everyone listening for doing this. Thank you, because you've spent a lifetime essentially doing something that, for whatever peculiar reason, the government doesn't want you to do. Have you been interfered with much, except for, of course, what happened this morning? Uh, yeah, it's been a pattern. Uh, I first went out on the college lecture circuit in September of 1981. And in the course of giving lectures at various colleges and universities, veterans were in my audiences. And some of them would approach me and say, uh, I know what you're talking about. I had my own experience at such and such a base. We need to talk. So I'd get their phone number. And... Beginning in February of 82, I made a series of calls to those veterans who had approached me and with their permission, taped their conversations. And uh, after I thanked them and hung up the phone, after each one of those veteran interviews, someone else called and breathed heavily into the phone, said nothing, and then hung up. And it only happened after I talked to these veterans at no other time did it happen. So clearly someone was aware of what I was up to. And we're trying to intimidate me. And frankly, for several months in 1982, I went, um, you know, what have I got myself into here? And really, do I want to continue this? And finally, I just decided that 
this is important. People need to know about it. Uh, I'm intrigued about it. I need to know about it. I don't think they're going to kill me, whoever they are. So let's just keep rolling. So I did that for, you know, decades, just kept interviewing veterans. But uh, telephone harassment is a, is a commonplace thing with me only when, when I'm talking to veterans or other researchers or journalists. Uh, the phone calls generally go dead at some point during the phone call. Uh, there have been things like that. Computer issues where I'm communicating with the same ca- same categories of people. Sorry about that. <laughs> communicate. Well, that, that, yeah. that's, that's, that's not a glitch. Been. That's just an accident. Let's go. Who knows who that could have been? But anyway, yeah, I'm teasing. Um, so, you know, they, they've messed with my emails, uh, emails between veterans and myself and other researchers. Sometimes they just disappear. They never arrive. Uh, sometimes they end up in our spam folders, even though we have an ongoing relationship established. So that kind of crap still goes on. Yeah. Well, what do you suppose is the motive? Because, you know, it's these things happen. Uh, they, it would seem to be important that the public know about them, uh, but they, I guess they're regarded as uh, uh, potentially ex, uh, exposing our vul- some critical vulnerabilities, defense vulnerabilities, and you're out there saying that not only do we have defense vulnerabilities, we have defense vulnerabilities to things which we can't even begin to understand which would be quite upsetting. You know, I was once on a base, uh, I believe it was Malmstrom, and uh, I was researching for a book called Black Magic, and no one told me anything about any of this. I didn't know about it at the time. And uh, I had, uh, I went to one of the missile launch centers, And I went both to the command center and went underground and got the whole tour, in other words, the the ordinary PR tour. It was nothing unusual. Uh, And I wasn't in I wasn't there for any reason. I was writing a thriller. It was before long before I was involved with communion or anything like that. But then the strangest thing I when we went to the one of the facilities where the where there was a minute actual Minuteman missile. They were working on it because it had had a targeting problem. And I've often wondered whether or not something happened that, you know, to it. In other words, something was done to it that's never been reported. And I wonder if you have any sense of this happening more often than has come to the surface. Um, I'm sure that the cases that I know about are only a small fraction of the total number. Um, You know, my research is catch as catch can. I have to hear about an incident. I have to be approached by a veteran or learn of a veteran who had a nuclear weapons background and approach him and hope that he's willing to talk to me. So it's a very sporadic uh, hit or miss kind of affair. But again, I've got nearly 200 sources on record at this point. And targeting issues are one of the things that the uh, missile targeting and missile maintenance personnel told tell me uh, that from time to time after a UFO is reported hovering directly over a missile launch facility, uh, which is the silo or the launch control facility, which is the blockhouse underground where two launch officers sit and control 10 missiles in the Minuteman system. 
uh, either on in either case, uh, depending on where the object's hovering. When the UFO leaves, the miss, you know, the, while the UFO is there, the, the missiles go offline. Uh, there's an indicated indication on the consoles down in the launch control capsule of something to miss. And the missile maintenance and the missile targeting people tell me when they examine the missiles, sometimes the hardware is fried, melted, uh, electronic circuits are melted, and what is called a guidance and control can, a group of electronic components in, in a insertable uh, component have to be replaced. Or, on the other hand, some people have told me that the targeting codes, which would allow the missile to hit its target, are either erased or have been scrambled. And so, you know, who knows what you witnessed. Um, there are, I'm sure, mundane targeting issues. There are mundane maintenance issues. So, but there clearly is a subset of cases involving UFO activity where the same thing is going on. So it could be that it's a more common problem than we know. Uh, now, let's, let me also ask about the Russian situation. <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about what you know about what's happened in, in Russia. Uh, George Knapp is the hero there. Um, I believe it was 1994, 93, 94. Uh, he was in the Soviet Union. Uh, or, or, sorry, he was in Russia, the former Soviet Union. And yeah, it just ceased to be the Soviet Union anyway. Right. In, in 91, it, it collapsed. But yeah, so he was in Russia in the early 90s and had interviewed, I believe, well over 100 former Soviet Army personnel. And there was a colonel, I think his name was Boris Sokolov from memory, that's correct. Uh, sat him down and said, you know, in the course of their conversation, said, oh, by the way, uh, you know, UFOs have messed with our nuclear missiles. And here are some documents that confirm that. And unbelievably to me, the colonel, according to George Knapp, uh, each document, several pages on the top page only, there was secret or top secret written. Uh, the colonel said, well, let's tear off the top page of each of these documents and you can take the rest to America. And if, if George had been caught, he'd still be in a Soviet pr or a Russian prison right now. I mean, that, that I couldn't have done that. But anyway, so George brought back in the early 90s, hundreds of pages of documents about Soviet nuclear weapons. Well, Soviet UFO incidents, some of which involved nuclear weapons. And so, for example, there were two occasions that are especially spectacular. Um, one in 1989 at a place called Kapustin Yar. There was a nuclear missile warhead storage facility. And according to one of the documents, a UFO disc-shaped object hovered over this depot, nuclear weapons depot, and was observed to fire beams of light down onto the building that held the weapons. So that's, that occurred in, I forget the month, but in 1989, uh, even more spectacular and ominous was another incident in October of 82 in Soviet Ukraine, where uh, a huge disc, you know, mothership sized disc apparently hovered over this intermediate nuclear missile base. And suddenly down in one of the launch capsules, uh, some number of mess missiles, I've never heard a specific number, but multiple missiles suddenly went into countdown mode. They were preparing to launch. And so you can imagine the launch officers were going crazy. They thought World War III was about to start, and they hadn't activated the missiles. They had no idea why the missiles were activated. Uh, but after 15 seconds, everything returned to normal, and no missiles were launched. 
And uh, that, again, was when a UFO was hovering directly over the missile base. So um, I've heard similar stories uh, from at least four individuals who were at Minot Air Force Base, North Dakota, in the 1960s about a UFO hovering over our own missiles and the missiles going into launch mode, not shutting down, but actually preparing to launch. And these officers who I described and, and printed their verbatim tape-recorded testimony in my book say that uh, they had to flip what was called an inhibit switch to prevent the launch of these missiles. Um, now, I've been asked repeatedly, do you, I think those aboard the UFO were trying to start World War III? No, I don't. I think both in Russia and in the U.S., what they were probably doing is demonstrating they had the ability to launch our missiles uh, themselves if they wished. And we're probably just trying to freak out the military people going, you know, you don't have control over these things. So, but that, that, that would have worked very well, too. Uh, I can't I mean, imagine. It would have definitely been severely freaked out. I can't imagine being one of these poor officers, either in Russia or America, you know, suddenly realizing their missiles are preparing to launch and they have no control. They didn't activate it. And, you know, thank God in America, uh, you know, this inhibit switch seemed to do the trick. And in Russia, apparently, according to the documents that George Knapp got, the, uh, the anomaly ceased of its own accord after 15 seconds. Now, in the cases where missiles were retargeted, do we know what the new, what the, or, or were there cases where the missiles were retargeted? I think so, yes. There were, there were. Now, I, do I, we know what the new targets were? No, and I, I asked that, everyone who mentioned that to me, and I'm, I'm thinking about a handful of people, maybe six occasions where I was told that that was the case, that the, the, uh, the targeting codes have been either altered or erased. Uh, one of my questions was, you know, well, well where were they retargeted to? And my thinking was, let's say, for example, if the original target was Moscow, when they checked the codes after the UFO left, was it Washington, D.C.? I mean, was that's it, right. You know, and, and that was the first question that came to my mind. And s sometime I can tell, you know, some of these people who are talkative at some point, I'll ask a question where they suddenly they're getting nervous about answering the question. And I never got a straight answer from any of those guys about where the missiles were, were retargeted. Uh, but yeah, you know, that's the question. Were, were they, you know, suddenly all the missiles we had aimed at Russia, were they or the Soviet Union? Were they now targeted to places in America just to make a point, you know, whoever was aboard the UFOs? Uh, you know, who knows? That's speculation on my part. But I think you and I are thinking the same thing. Well, exactly, uh, and especially because uh, the Russia is not all that vulnerable is, in terms of its governance to a missile strike on Moscow. Uh, it would certainly create a tremendous amount of damage and confusion, but the government is sufficiently diversified to where they wouldn't lose control of their country. That's not true of the United States. Uh, a destruction, the, the sudden destruction of Washington would bring this country to its knees, and it's, it would it would uh, become incredibly chaotic. So it's a very dangerous situation for us. Uh, now let's go back in time to an incident in 1964 at Vandenberg Air Force Base uh, that's also involved some events at Big Sur. Can you? Tell us what happened at 
Vandenberg and then what occurred at Big Sur? Uh, that's unquestion- unquestionably the most dramatic incident that I've investigated. Uh, it's known as the Big Sur UFO incident. Uh, the former Air Force officer who divulged this to the public in 1982 uh, is Dr. Bob Jacobs. And uh, his information was confirmed by another former officer, a man named Dr. Florenz Mansman, who is now deceased, unfortunately. But those two individuals corroborated each other's stories in um First, public letters in the 1980s, private, pri- private letters, I should say, in the 1980s, which I had accessed thanks to Bob Jacobs giving them to me. But um, he had also talked uh, publicly in magazine articles initially. Uh, I got him on a television program, an old program called Sightings that he and I were involved in on the Sci-Fi Channel back in the mid-90s. Um, he went public as far as I know, for the first time nationally on television about it. But what it involved essentially was the test launch of an Atlas missile from Vandenberg Air Force Base on September 15, 1964. And uh, his job was uh, chief of a photographic team located at a remote site well away from the base up the California coast on the Big Sur region, in the Big Sur region. And they were on a mountaintop with this high-powered telescopic camera and uh, taking film of all the missile launches from that vantage point, they could get side views of the missile launches that you couldn't get down on Vandenberg itself. And according to Bob on this one launch, everything went normal. Everyone was happy. You know, the film was shipped back to Vandenberg and two days later he was unexpectedly called into uh, the office of this major mansman, Florence Mansman, who uh, had a projector set up, uh, Mansman was there with a couple of Air Force people and a, two guys in civilian suits. And Jacobs said, I was told to sit down and watch the film. On the film, they saw he saw the, the launch of the missile, uh, the separation of the warhead, the dummy warhead they were testing from the missile. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, out of the blue, this little point of light came into camera frame, went directly toward the separated warhead, and began to circle it. And as it did so on the film, you could see four similar uh, to lightning or, or perhaps a laser beam. Bob has described them similarly. Uh, beams of light, four beams of light emanated from this object. And the uh, object suddenly flew out of camera frame from the direction it came. Meanwhile, the dummy warhead tumbled into the ocean several hundred miles uh, short of its target. Now, uh, after the film was shown, uh, Mansman apparently went up to Bob and or Lieutenant Jacobs and said, you know, what was that? Were you guys messing around up there? Almost like that, you know, he was suggesting yeah. they fabricated this. And Bob said, right. you know, I have no idea what that was. And so he, Major Mansman apparently said to, to Lieutenant Jacobs, you were never to discuss this again. And he kept his silence until I think it was 1982. Again, this occurred in 1964 at which point he felt this is something he could probably talk about. And um, he went public in a magazine article. He suddenly began getting uh, hang-up phone calls and, and death threats over the phone. And somebody uh, actually blew up his mailbox. Apparently, Bob said he picked up the phone. He lived on a farm. He had one of these rural mailboxes down at the end of the driveway. A uh, voice said, your mailbox alight. What a beautiful sight. You're going down, motherfucker. 
and one second later his mailbox blew up so someone had put firecrackers or you know m80s or whatever in the in the mailbox so he and his wife were getting death threats after he published the article now fortunately major mansman once he po- once bob circulated the story publicly in this magazine article to his credit major mansman came forward and substantiated everything he said and said not only that, but when I expect, inspected the film frame by frame with a magnifier, I could see that that little point of light on the can on the film that came in and circled the warhead was actually a disc-shaped object with a dome. He said before each of the four flashes of light, it pivoted on its vertical axis before the light uh, the beam came out of it. So somehow it it had to do that before it fired this beam. But he's confirmed everything that Jacob said. And, um, you know, so the implication for this is not only can whoever's flying our UF, the, the UFOs shut down our missiles in the ground in their silos, uh, they can actually take them out when they're flying in suborbit at thousands of miles per hour. They have the capability of taking out our nuclear warheads in space in flight. Um, now, whether if we, uh, you know, foolishly launch a mass, uh, you know, a mass attack on an adversary and they on us, whether whoever flying the UFOs can shut down thousands of missiles or hundreds of missiles simultaneously is an open question. But they demonstrated in 1964 that they had the, the ability to do at least in a, in a single single flight, missile flight. Which is gets me to the next issue, and it's more an issue than a question, because I'm not sure you can can actually answer it, but we can explore it together, which we're going to do after the next break. And that is, if we have a nuclear conflict here, will they intervene? We'll be right back. We're talking to Robert Hastings, his website hastings ufo uh, dot uh, ufo hastings dot com his book ufos and nukes available i'm sure it's available on amazon and barnes and noble uh, and probably in your local bookstore if you've got a local bookstore and you may because the book trade is picking up there's over 200 bookstores open new bookstores open in the last year which is always good news for us writers uh, Now, we're in a situation, as I alluded earlier, which we could end up in a nuclear conflict very easily. Before World War I, in fact, in July of 1914, no one thought a world war would develop out of what was happening. It, 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 It wasn't until the end of the month, toward the end of the month, that it was realized that this might actually turn into a huge conflict. In other words, the conflict situation got out of hand. In our era, where everything happens much more quickly, this can happen in a matter of minutes at any time, in my opinion now. We can easily end up in a situation where the uh, uh, North Koreans, for example, fire a missile that appears to be targeted at the United States, or maybe more than one. We would then retaliate. 
and with it, it, once we had confirmed that these were nuclear warheads or just that they were going to strike this country, uh, which we would be able to confirm in a matter of minutes, we would have to, the president would be in a situation where he would be told missiles are incoming toward the United States from North Korea. What do we do? And he would say, well, are they armed with nuclear weapon warheads or not? And we we may be able to tell. I don't know. But if we can't tell, then he's going to be told, we don't know. He will then launch against North Korea. And from there, I suspect we would have a, a world nuclear conflict. Would they intervene, do you think? With all of your years of working on this, I know you can't say, I've got information that they would intervene, but what's your sense of it? Uh, that's an open question, and I go back and forth. Um, even though they're very technologically advanced, whoever they are, uh, you know, again, they've demonstrated they can shut down a few missiles here, a few missiles there. Can they shut down all the missiles simultaneously in our country and our adversaries' countries? Uh, you know, either, you know, knock them offline in, in the ground or in aboard the submarines that some of them uh, sit in. Or can once they're launched and they're flying over the pole, let's say if the Soviets, the Russians rather, and I uh, and America rather, uh, you know, go to war, can they actually take out thousands of missiles uh, flying over the poles? I don't know. Um, the, the situation is complicated by the fact that some of the missiles sit just offshore of America and Russia aboard submarines. And so not only are they, you know, who would they have to deal with these masses of missiles flying over the North Pole, but there were many missiles, you know, conceivably 100 miles off of Washington or not much farther away from Moscow that can also be launched that would have to be taken out. So God knows, you know, whether what would happen. Um, I, I just there's really no way to evaluate it based on what I know, what I've been told. Uh, I'm sure that the people in the Pentagon and the CIA, and believe me, CIA is definitely involved to this day, no matter what they say in all of this, as is NSA, the National Security Agency, and, and other intelligence agencies. It's not only the Air Force and the Navy that are dealing with all of this, uh, and that's been de demonstrated to me time and again during my research period. Um, you know, God knows what they think, what they worry about, um, but... Yeah, it's it's a it's a major unknown. I think is the bottom line. Well, some years ago, uh, the United States agreed to uh, allow Japan to test nuclear weapons uh, delivery systems, uh, medium range nuclear delivery systems, not the weapons themselves, at White Sands, and China reacted by doing the very thing that you described. They first fired, a, a, sent a submarine just beyond the 12 mile limit and fired a missile up range that passed through the, it was visible off the coast of Los Angeles as it passed. And then they did the same thing a few days later in the Gulf of Mexico. Wow, to, to, I hadn't heard that, wow. Well, it, it happened whether we heard it or not. <laughs> Let me put it that way. And yeah, I think that the one that, that uh, I think that's in the press somewhere. I'm, I don't think it's classified. 
the reason for it has not been the reason the Japanese uh, uh, missile tests that the that was the reason the Chinese did it. I don't think the two things were ever put together in the press, but that is in fact the case. Wow. So, uh, and I might add that the North Koreans have got some submarines, not as far as we know, they certainly don't have any nuclear submarines or any submarines capable of uh, uh, reaching the waters of the United States, close to the United States, as far as we know. And judging from the way their ordinance is working in Ukraine, we could expect that they might not have success if they do fire a missile at us, but that's not the point. The point is the level of tension is so high and things are, things could fly out of control at any moment, I think. Yep. Um, now uh, let's, let's go way back and we're going to, we're going to do some interesting stuff here because we're going to go way back and then we're going to come back up on Rendlesham. Uh, let's go way back to the early, early days when we st first started testing, uh, uh, nuclear weapons, and the, then we uh, began to test V2 rockets at White Sands. Uh, are you familiar with what happened with those V2 rockets, some of them? Uh, it's, yes, uh, it's well known. Uh, there was actually an article, I believe, in Look Magazine in uh, 1949, I want to say, where uh, people who were firing the captured German B-2 rockets at White Sands Proving Ground in southern New Mexico. Uh, word leaked to the media that uh, objects like what we would call orbs uh, were sighted at, near the missiles as they were ascending, uh, were captured on film. In one case, two of these little orbs flew tight spirals around the missile while it was ascending and so on. So a little bit of that leaked out even in, in the media in the uh, late 40s, early 50s. So the kind of thing that occurred at Big Sur in 1964 had already occurred similarly uh, where UFOs or orbs were flying in close proximity to our missile tests. Um, that was well known. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much the public paid attention and uh, certainly wasn't acknowledged by the government, but there are even declassified documents now from the, the Army and uh, I guess it would have been the Army Air Force and the Air Force, um, and the Navy, for example. I'm aware of Navy documents referring to the activities at White Sand in the late 40s. So this started, it's interesting that uh, we we bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Shortly thereafter, there is an upsurge in, uh, two years later, in fact, in UFO sightings, including one of the stranger parts of the phenomenon, which is a crash. And crashes seem to be quite common. In fact, I remember when my wife and I were, she was, uh, uh, we were learning about all of this after my close encounter experience. And she said, you know, Whitley, I don't want you going up in these things. They're more dangerous than airplanes. <laughs> and uh, she wasn't wrong. And so here we have this breathtaking capability they can retarget missiles from a distance they can they can do all kinds of things to interrupt our nuclear 
uh, abilities, but they crash all the time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, can you can you can you just sort of speak to that? um, I I understand the argument that if they're so advanced, you know, how come they seem to be crashing frequently? Well, um, even David Grush, who recently talked to Congress under oath about these uh, crash retrieval programs, um, he's been very cagey. Apparently, he's very limited as to what he can say publicly. But uh, I get the feeling that we're talking about maybe dozens of incidents over time all around the world, at least what the government, U.S. government knows about. Well, if you look at the number of UFO sightings worldwide in the last 70 or 80 years, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of sightings around the globe. So if you look at it from the standpoint of percentages out of that many craft lying around, um, and, you know, only a few dozen crash over 80 year period. That's a pretty good track record, a pretty good safety record, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, all I say is, you know, it is what it is. Uh, we can make arguments as to what seems reasonable or unreasonable in, in that regard. But it, the fact remains is that the people who are, have the inside track, including David Grush, are saying that some, you know, significant number, perhaps a few dozen of these craft have crashed over, you know, the last century. Um, you know, it is what it is, uh, you know, it's, who knows what, what the exact circumstances were in any given case. Uh, but those are the data that are available at this point. So we know they can crash. We also know they have extraordinary powers, but we, what we don't know is would they use those powers to save our bacon or can they? And as you pointed out, they may be able to demonstrate to a limited degree an ability to interrupt our nuclear weapons, but could they interrupt an entire nuclear war? That's an that's an obviously an unknown. And would they? And that I just don't think anyone can can absolutely can answer. I have said, you know, given that we don't really know a lot about who they are and what they're up to, uh, we do have some valid data, in my view, including from the abduction cases. Um, as you well know, and yeah. uh, I well know we can talk about that another time. But, um, you know, the fact remains, we don't know much about them. Uh, could they conceivably say, well, we spent nearly 100 years trying to make these idiots back down from their nuclear posture and they ignored us. So, you know, let's screw them and they could just <laughs> leave us and uh, to our own devices. You know, I mean, that's in the realm of possibility. How likely that is, is, is another question. Yes, I, I, my sense of them is, I know them, is that they might just let us go if we started a nuclear war with among ourselves. But if they're here for the planet, then that will happen. They will not let us go because they would, a nuclear war would make the planet uninhabitable for a very long time. Correct. Full out, all out nuclear war would spread so much radiation over the planet that it would, uh, it would not be a a um, a viable place. Well, if they, they have, use it. if they have projects here, if this abduction program and the hybridization program that has been described, if all of that is real and they do have a presence here uh, for their own devices, their own purposes, 
one would think they would have a vested interest in seeing that nuclear war does not occur because it's going to mess up whatever they've got going on in addition to whatever it would do to the planet and the human race and our civilization. Um, so I think they have a stake in the game. And, um, you know, hopefully that alone would, you know, if they don't have altruistic impulses toward mankind, uh, they hopefully have some sense of, you know, we need to prevent this from happening because it's going to screw up everything we've got going on here. Yeah, well, that's the hope uh, that they because then we don't have to worry about altruism. And, you know, as a close encounter witness who has had uh, sexual material taken from my body, I'm iffy about the altruism. (laughs) And uh, uh, I uh, at the same time, uh, my relationship with them is one of the most wonderful things in my life. And just as recently as early this morning, it is. It's really a very active and extraordinary part of my life. So we're not going down that path right now. Yeah. But let's instead go to one of the most mysterious of all cases, which is which is Rendlesham. And how do nukes figure into this case? Uh, the Rendlesham, RAF Rendlesham was leased by the United States. Uh, during the Cold War era, it's now been reverted back to being a British facility. I don't even know if it's operational these days. But in 1980, um, we now know from multiple sources, including the deputy base commander, Colonel Charles Halt, that there were multiple UFO incidents over about a one-week period in December of 1980. And most people have heard about the, the incursion in the woods where he was leading a team of security policemen to investigate mysterious lights, and uh, they had a whole series of sightings, an object moving through the woods that looked like a giant eyeball, he said, that was winking, that suddenly exploded or at least uh, disintegrated into five separate objects which flew in all directions, and either those objects uh, or similar objects suddenly appeared overhead in the sky above the security police team and shot down at one point a laser-like beam at their feet, And, you know, they're standing there wondering what the hell this is all about. Um, But for my research and my own personal interest, uh, Colonel Holt, at one point in his narrative over the years, has said that he could hear on the radio he had uh, that the objects had moved back over Bentwater's base and were hovering above the nuclear weapons storage area. Now, the Air Force official policy is not to divulge any location where nukes are present. And so Colonel Halt, even though he's been retired for many years, he won't confirm that nuclear weapons were there, but it's well known. And some of the uh, security policemen I've interviewed have talked openly about weapons being stored there. Um, And I know the protocols that were involved. If the the Soviets had launched a war in Europe with hundreds and thousands of tanks, uh, the plan was to use the nuclear tactical battlefield nukes that were at Bentwaters and other bases in Western Europe to load them aboard F-16 aircraft and other aircraft, fly them to the battlefield and drop them on the battlefield areas. Um, they wouldn't have been strategic weapons that would have been fired on Russia, but they would have been localized, you know, lower lower uh, yield nukes that would have been used in battle. Those, by all accounts, is what what was stored at at the Bentwaters Weapons Storage Area. And not only has Colonel Halt described hearing radio chatter where one of the objects was hovering above the weapons storage area, it's called a WSA, 
and was observed by the security personnel shooting laser-like beams down into one of the bunkers. Uh, but other security policemen have now gone on the record with me and uh, about this incursion. So it did occur. Uh, I'm sure what went on in the woods that most people have heard about when Halt was out there tromping around with the security police team, that was part of the overall picture. But I'm sure whoever was flying the UFOs didn't come to just fly around the woods. They came to hover over the nuclear weapons, which, according by all accounts, that's what they did. Um, I don't recall what the world situation was then, but I'm sure it was tense uh, at that time. And uh, the um, uh, the question, of course, then is there's also a, a fascinating question about time with regard to Rendlesham. Oh, there's been some speculation that this had something to do with distortion of time or that the the objects were were from the future. In fact, there's even a a, 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 a large contingent in the UFO research community that does believe that all of this is from the future. And if that's the case, maybe they are coming back to save themselves. Could that be it, you suppose? Uh, that, is, that is one theory. Uh, one of the uh, security policemen who's gone public for many years, Jim Pen Peniston, uh, alleges that when he touched a small triangular-shaped object in the woods, that suddenly his mind was flooded with zeros and ones like binary code, which he subsequently wrote down in, in his notebook. And assuming that that happened, I don't know that it did or didn't, but if it did happen, and assuming that he recorded all the ones and zeros in, uh, you know, accurately, uh, it's been interpreted by some people as saying that, indeed, these are humans from the future who've come back uh, to mess with our nuclear weapons uh, at some point uh, for whatever reasons, I presumably to try to change historical events. I mean, that's the implication. Uh, Peniston also alleges that the, the, well, the people who've analyzed his code, his binary code, as recorded in his notebook, say that uh, these alleged future humans have described uh, various places around the world, uh, sacred sites, so-called, that have to do with uh, this this larger question of who they are and where they're from and why they're here. Now, I don't know about that except what I've read. Um, you know, Penison certainly has had the experience. It's been it's been uh, verified by another security policeman named John Burroughs in in large part, who apparently was abducted while that was going on. By the way, uh, when Penison was touching this craft, suddenly uh, Burroughs was nowhere to be seen and allegedly was missing for some time. So it's uh, lots of things went on there that, you know, you really don't when you hear about the Rendlesham case, uh, most people in the public, other than those with a, an interest in UFOs, they don't know all these very, very dramatic details. But, yeah, if you follow that scenario as presented by Penniston, uh, it seems to suggest that all that UFO activity dealt was due to future humans coming back and, and dealing with things in our own time, as opposed to extraterrestrials. Then it would suggest to me that we are close to a nuclear war because there are uh, all of these, um, the number of UFO sightings has increased just massively in the past few years. And there is all of this revelation. Now, I don't want to go down a 
the wrong path here, but uh, one of the things that about time travel is that it's first, it's most likely impossible, but not completely impossible in the sense that there's something called the grandfather paradox, which is well known, which means you can't go back and kill your own grandfather. Therefore, you can't go back at all because the grandfather paradox would prevent time travel, but not if you send back in your into your own past something that doesn't exist at all. In other words, you create a fake alien race and you send it back. It would have a lot of freedom because it wouldn't affect the grandfather paradox wouldn't come into effect. And uh, so maybe that's it. I, uh, you know, all of this, I think, bottom line, everything we're talking about, uh, you know, we know they're real. We know the craft are real. Um, people who've had abduction experiences, and I am among that, as some of your viewers will know, I, I've had those experiences. I, I kept that secret for many years, uh, but I have, uh, you know, and sure as hell didn't wish it upon myself, but there you go. Um, you well, know, wait a minute here. I, I you certainly kept it secret from me. <laughs> I didn't know until this moment that can you tell it since you're not keeping it secret anymore? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, you, you honestly, frankly, you may I think you've just forgotten because uh, Bob Jacobs, who was involved in the Big Sur incident, he and I wrote a book called uh, Confession in 2019. Oh, that's right. And, and I thought we interviewed you, didn't I? We, you, you interviewed us on, uh, well, I was on a telephone. I wasn't on video. But, uh, yeah, so we both decided we had had experiences. Uh, I confessed to him, and let's see, it would have been maybe 2012 that I was an abductee. And much to my amazement, he came back at me and said, so am I, and here's what's happened to me. So we waited a year or two, and then we went, you know, we got to write a book. Uh, you know, we got to go public with this. And so we did in 2019. And um, so uh, in my view, we are dealing with, quote, aliens, whether they're extraterrestrial or interdimensional or because many species have been described by abductees. There are multiple races. You know, who knows? Some of them could be ETs. Some could be from other dimensions of reality. But or even from here and from here. And uh, <laughs> You know, we can't control any a uh, 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 less intelligent species than us can't control anything, essentially anything about what we do. If there's a more in intelligent species than us here, we wouldn't necessarily even be able to detect that because they would be so far ahead of us in their ability to control what we see and don't see. We might just see glimmers of their presence. But listen, Robert, uh, we, we, and we talked about this on by email. I I want to interview the two of you about the new about the other book about confession. Sure. I, I don't think. I, in fact, I looked and I don't think I have interviewed you about it. Uh, you did, and it, again, I was on the telephone by Bob. Well, that's right. But I, my mind is not do, doing well. We had a lot of trouble, folks, getting this started. We had all kinds of glitches. And I haven't said anything about the fact that there have been glitches here that I don't think anyone can see during the course of this interview. 
uh, but I'm a little distracted and I apologize. Uh, no worries. Um, but I believe it was in January of 2020 that we appeared uh, with you, Bob Jacobs and I. So I'm okay. sure he would be willing to, to come on again. I am willing to come on again. Um, just to sort of put a cap on this part of the, the material, um, I have wondered, uh, as my book says, as our co-authored book says, I apparently had uh, an experience when I was a child. And I go into detail as to what that was. But then again, in 1988, I had a definite abduction experience and two other people were involved and so on. So at that point, I had already been on the lecture circuit talking about the UFO cover up for seven years. And I had to start thinking, you know, holy cow, am I doing what I think I'm doing in terms of in educating the public about the nuclear weapons cases? Is that my own idea? Did I undertake my research of my own volition or is somebody nudging me? You know, if I'm if indeed I'm an abductee and I've had experiences going back many, many years, is really somebody planting in my mind, uh, you know, the, the idea that you ought to study this subject and, and publicize it? I don't know the answer to that, but, you know, it's uh, it's a very complex situation I find myself in. Uh, yeah. I know. I'm going to be 74 soon, and I, I don't know the answers to most of the questions that I have. But uh, Bob and I felt that, you know, we were getting on in years. And if, if we were going to talk candidly about the some experience of our of what we've endured over the years, we had to talk about our abduction experiences. So we well, I think I, I probably do want to have the two of you on because, again, I have learned an immense amount more about the visitors in the past few years than I knew in 2019. I'm a different man in terms of my understanding and insight into their activities and the meaning of everything. And so I think I'm gonna get, take a look at the book uh, and I'm going to, uh, I'll let you know, uh, but I think we should revisit it. And I'd also love if you could come on to our subscriber uh, video chat. We have a video chat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Pacific time. It lasts an hour. And uh, if you could come on one Saturday in the next couple of weeks, that would just be great. Um, I, I'm willing to do that. As you know, I haven't been well, and I sort yeah. of have, I have to play it day to day. I, I got a good night's sleep last night. I, I didn't take my medications, which really cloud my mind this morning so we could talk. But, you know, right. it, I, I, I'm hesitant to give you a blanket yes to that because, you know, it depends on how I'm feeling day to day. But, yeah, I, let's try to do that. OK, folks, so we'll try to do it and keep keep an eye on the site because I think it would be an absolutely fascinating conversation. I know our subscribers love it. And uh, if we can do it, we will do it. All right. Robert Hastings, I would like to thank you very much for being with us on Dreamland. And may your health situation stabilize and improve. Thank you very much. I, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. 
Whitley Strieber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.